0: Jane and Michael Stern will go out of their way to find the perfect American comfort food. There is nothing more soothing after a meal of hot, spicy barbecue or hot, spicy fried chicken than cool lemon icebox pie.
1: That diner in Atlanta had the best lemon icebox pie.
0: And for Dave Hunter,
2: Interstate 75 is more than just a fast way to drive from Detroit to Dixie.
3: Because we do love those little towns up in Ohio where you can still see the old Americana. Places like Troy, for instance, it's just a beautiful little Victorian town. And Richard
2: Banks explains why he'd rather do his traveling on a whitewater river or mountain trail. Adventure travel is
4: really more of a state of mind. It's really trying to move off the comfort zone, go down a path you've never been down before, or often discover the world for the first time, and yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. From American road food and a guide to I-75 to Richard Bang's adventures around the world, there's a lot for you to enjoy in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. What kind of travel gets your adrenaline pumping? Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Richard Bangs explains his passion for adventure travel in the most unexpected places. In Canadian snowbird, Dave Hunter has found a way to turn the drudgery of a long-distance drive on Interstate 75 into a well-paced adventure of its own. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a return visit from Jane and Michael Stern. They're the experts at finding the slices of Americana that tend to come on a blue plate special at local diners and dives all over the USA. Integral to appreciating cultures all over the world is, of course, eating... You may debate this, but it's clear to me that a very important part of American cuisine is simply road food. It's folk art. Didn't have any fancy chef inventing it. This is traditional food steeped in the ethnicity of America, a melting pot country with a melting pot cuisine, and it's cheap. You don't need a reservation. You don't need to dress up, but it does help to have a little guidance. Jane and Michael Stern have joined us today. They're the authors of the classic road food, a 700-page collection of all the greatest places to eat as you're driving around the United States. The other book is called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us.
0: Great to be here.
1: Hi, Rick.
2: I'm just going to throw some exciting little dishes at you here that I learned about in your 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late book, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on them. You guys write up food like a lot of us write up museums. You just do it with a passion and with a, with a respect, and I, I just am inspired
0: by that. And uh, tell me about clam chowder. How much time do you have? (laughs) Do you mean East Coast, (laughs) West
1: Coast, or Southern? And
0: and when you talk about East Coast, do you mean Rhode Island chowder, Northern New England chowder, or Southern New England chowder? There are so many varieties. The fundamental varieties in the East, anyway, are Manhattan style, which detractors Mm -hmm. say is merely vegetable soup with clams thrown in it. It's kind of a reddish stuff. Then there's New England style, which can be milky or creamy or buttery. The very best of it is served at the Main Diner in Wells, Maine, It's very buttery and rich, but not heavy, and it's loaded with Mm. seafood.
1: Excuse me, but you're leaving out the really best chowder, Rhode Island Okay, so if you're
0: going to have chowder in one state, I know this is
2: dangerous to say because there's great chowder all over the place, but what single state would you be sure to have chowder on your list?
1: Rhode Island. Maine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and moving along. Oregon. (laughs) While
0: you're in Rhode Island, would you want to try some Johnny Cakes? Of course you would, but then again, the question is, do you want the thin Johnny Cakes or the thick Johnny Cakes? On one side of Narragansett Bay, you get them thick. The other side, they're as thin as lace. What you must know about Johnny Cakes is that state law proclaims they may only be made from cornmeal made from flint corn. And when written down, you must not put an H in the name. It's J-O-N-N-Y-C-A-K-E. So this is a state law. They're serious about their Johnny Cakes. Yes. Wow. And they're good. And you will
1: will go to Johnny Cake jail if you slip (laughs) up. So watch your step.
0: And the great thing about Johnny Cakes is that you can have them for breakfast in lieu of pancakes or as a side dish with any meal.
1: Nice. Now take me
2: north up to Maine and uh, let's check out the Whoopie Pie.
0: Okay. Whoopie Pie, it's... Imagine like a giant, squishy Oreo cookie. By squishy, I mean instead of cookie, it's sort of like devil's food cake. And you know, I
1: always thought ringdings kind of got their impetus from whoopie Pies because it's kind of like squishy chocolate cake with a layer of creme. Creme, not, not C-R-E-M-E. creme. Um, right. You know, I think whoopie Pies really got popular during World War II when there were not a lot of sugar and not a lot of butter because it's kind of like the mock frostings that you see in World War II books.
0: And a great whoopie pie, in my opinion, is defined by the fact that when you pick it up in your fingers, it is impossible not to get chocolate stuck on your fingers because it's that moist.
2: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jane and Michael Stern. They're the authors of Road Food. Their website is roadfood.com, the Bible of uh, eating on the, on the road in the United States, and they've got another book called 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late. Something else that's kind of squishy and tasty, banana pudding down in the heart of Dixie.
0: Oh. Or as Elvis used to call it, nanner pudding. That was El, one of Elvis's favorite desserts. <laughs> is that desserts. right? Nanner yeah. pudding. Yes, he liked to talk baby talk, you know.
1: And eat baby food. And eat
0: baby food. And and banana pudding is to me one of the defining comfort foods of the South.
1: A banana pudding with real slices of banana in it, vanilla wafers, also called Nilla wafers, mm-hmm. and whipped cream on and the whipped top. And whipped cream, and of course, or the, meringue. So the Nilla meringue. wafer
2: is a is a required part of the recipe. Absolutely, Absol- it is essential. It and what's it. great is, I mean, baby food. I ver- love those Nilla wafers. That takes me back <laughs> a decade. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, while we're down there, a barbecued pork sandwich down in the Mississippi Delta.
0: If you want a great barbecued pork sandwich, you go to Clarksdale, Mississippi, which happens to be home of the blues. I mean, where Robert Johnson allegedly sold his soul to become master of the guitar. But it's also home of Abe's, a restaurant that makes a wicked Big Abe barbecue sandwich. It's two layers of pulled pork with coleslaw, cheese, and a giant sesame bun. It's pork heaven.
1: And the perfect side dish was invented at the Hollywood Cafe in Hollywood, Mississippi, which is basically just like a crossroads. And that is the fried dill pickle.
2: Okay. So you got a fried dill pickle with your barbecued pork sandwich throughout the South Biscuits are a big deal, and I'm from the Northwest, and I don't even get biscuits. Tell me about
0: biscuits. Well, you know, we've gotten a lot of great recipes for biscuits from Southern cooks, and the recipes are usually two or three ingredients and, like, a short paragraph, you know, combine and mix and then bake. We can't do it. It's all in the cook's touch. A great biscuit is so light, you almost want to put a weight on it to keep it from floating off the plate. What was
1: that place in North Carolina that you could see her making the biscuits, and they had the country ham? Between them. <laughs> Getting a blank look.
2: <laughs> People are just passionate about their biscuits, and it's got to be a quality biscuit, and that's, that's something that is a forte of the South, then.
0: Biscuits are a forte of the South, and there are generally two kinds. There are the kinds that are cut out with, a, say, a glass, and then there's the cathead biscuit which is so named because it's as big as a cat's head and also kind of all knobby and gnarled. I think a, they're called drop smooth, biscuits.
1: You know, also so, known as a drop. Something
2: fundamental to good road food appreciation is probably go with the local specialties. I mean if you really uh, if you go with what's a specialty of a state, you're going to be having a better experience.
1: That's exactly true, Rick. I mean sometimes we get readers uh, write to us and they say We found the best Cajun restaurant up in northern Montana. Right. And, you know, (laughs) It might be fine. It might be great, but the anomaly is not what we're looking for. Well, I want
0: huckleberries in northern Montana.
2: No, I want testicles in northern Montana. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Stay away from me. Let's talk about (laughs) – I mean, listen to these great names. Prairie oysters, barnyard jewels, cowboy caviar, tender groin, Rocky Mountain oysters, and lamb fries. Where, where do people find cow testicles served as delicacies? Well, do you
1: know about the testicle festival? It's Tell in me. Montana, in Montana. It? It's yeah. a yearly event. And, yeah. And beef country and primarily. And rooster fries. No rooster place yet. for cows, yeah. man. Many, many things have testicles beside a cow, and you can eat them.
2: <laughs> what kind of testicles do people eat in American folk cuisine?
0: They're generally fried. I mean, they're sliced But into, ca- are they cow testicles? Cow is the most prominent testicle, you'll find out, with Calf
1: is the— Calf, because well, you don't
0: want calves. an old bull. No, you don't want bull testicles. You, you want, want a small testicle. Nice, fresh calf testicle. And, and they're
1: and called calf fries.
0: Calf fries. And, you know, that used to be the great reward that cowboys would give themselves after a day of branding and castrating as a big pan full of testicles. Little cowboy
2: caviar. Now, is this actually served? Is this, you'll find this in, in, in diners around? Uh, oh,
0: throughout, throughout the West. I mean, uh, one of the, our favorite places is the Cattleman's Restaurant in the stockyards of Oklahoma City. They not only serve Rocky Mountain oysters for an hors d'oeuvre, they also make a wonderful steak soup that includes testicles.
2: And what, does, what do these taste like?
1: Foie gras. Foie gras. Kind of, yeah,
0: they're kind of like organ, like sort of sweetbreads. Sweetbreads, like liver. Like, yeah. yeah,
2: okay. So if you want the uh, the fancy French kind of liver kind of food in America, you go to cow country and you have your uh, barnyard jewels.
0: Your, <laughs> your, your tender groin.
2: <laughs> okay, moving uh, beyond that topic, let's go back to the Deep South. You want some lemon ice box pie?
0: Mm. There is nothing more soothing after a meal of hot, spicy barbecue or hot, spicy fried chicken than cool lemon icebox pie. It's a perfect balance between that kind of tart, citrus lemon flavor and the creaminess of the curd. That diner
1: Mm. in Atlanta had the best lemon icebox pie I Mm. ever tasted. The problem is they only made three of them, and it sold out instantly. Um, the you, silver skillet. The silver skillet oh, okay. in Atlanta, nice. Georgia. You, you kind of get a sense of how um, archaic that recipe is because who has an icebox anymore? Yeah. I mean, now they'd be called a lemon sub-zero yeah. pie.
2: <laughs> well, that's the fun thing that a lot of these dishes, I'm sure, go back w- way, way back, and they they survive still. When you go to a soul food restaurant, uh, chicken and waffles, that's a
0: treat. That's right, and there are still a lot of restaurants that serve it, especially out west. We just had some great chicken and waffles at a restaurant called Lolo's Chicken and Waffles in Phoenix, Arizona. All
2: right. And in, in Southern California, there's some great uh, chicken and waffle Roscoe's, places.
0: House of Chicken yes, and Waffles yes. in Los Angeles. Yes.
2: Talk about Frito Pie, New Mexico.
0: Well, New Mexico and Dallas, Texas both claim to have invented it. We won't get in the middle of that squabble. But what Frito Pie is, it's a great combination of chili, the local chili, on top of Fritos. And the trick is to have just enough chili and just enough Fritos positioned just so in the dish so that some of those Fritos turn nice and soft and kind of become almost like a meal, whereas the ones at the edge retain their crispness. And you're
1: ideally supposed to serve it in the individual Frito bag, just pour the chili in there and put the shredded cheese on the top of it. Mm. uh, Santa Fe claims that Frito pie was invented at the Woolworths on the square in Santa (laughs) Fe, and them's fighting words if you say no Ah, to Texas.
2: local pride showing itself in folk culture called edible road food. Jane and Michael, a lot of us do our road tripping in the summer, and it can be hot in different parts of the United States. What's your last tip on just keeping cool as you enjoy Road
0: Food USA? If you happen to be anywhere in or around the Midwest, look for Custard. They take that very seriously. They make it fresh.
1: Explain custard. It's not... It's not just soft serve ice
0: cream. I mean, it's a whole other brand of food. It's very rich and yet not heavy. It's the perfect summertime refresher.
1: And they also have concretes. What's a concrete? A concrete is the soft serve ice cream that's so thick that when you turn the cup upside down, Ah. it doesn't fall out.
2: Yeah, they've got famous ice cream in, in Turkey where you have to cut it with a knife. (gasps) Really? Yeah, so it's probably a a Turkish concrete. (laughs) The whole world is full of good food, and we've been focusing on folk culture that's edible right here in the United States. We've been talking with Jane and Michael Stern, author of Road Food. Their website is roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, continued happy eating, and thanks, as always, for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick.
2: Bye, Rick. Instead of classic American diners and fish shacks, the road food you're most likely to find on the exits of most American freeways these days is the same forgettable fast food you can find anywhere. That's why Dave Hunter publishes a guide to the superhighway that connects Michigan to Florida. He knows how to find a good meal on a long-distance drive on I-75, and he knows where the clean restrooms and the speed traps are, too. And he's got lots of other practical advice for snowbirds, truckers, and everyone else putting on the miles on I-75. He's next on Travel with Rick Steves. get from the Great Lakes down to Florida, there's one main drag. It's I-75, and snowbirds know this route well, and so does Dave Hunter. Dave Hunter's a Toronto-based travel writer. He and his wife have been making this drive from Detroit to Dixie, making it entertaining by producing a guidebook to the route called Along Interstate 75. Dave's been writing this book now for for 20 years. He joins us to give us a little insight into how to make the trip uh, part of the joy itself. Dave, thanks for being with
3: us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick.
2: Now, you're a Canadian telling Americans how to enjoy their I-75. Uh, how can a Canadian come down and give us an insight into our own backyard?
3: <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, it uh, started, I suppose, in 1992 with unemployment on my side and friends giving us a party saying, you've got to go down to Florida. You've got to go and cool out before you start your career again. And we set off down I-75 looking for a certain restaurant called a Cracker Barrel. Nobody had heard of Cracker Barrels at the time. Today there are hundreds of them all over the place. And as we drove I said somebody really should write a book that shows where all these restaurants are. We also when you want to fill up with gas I just really wanted to know where all the Exxon stations were on the right hand side of the road rather than going across bridges and you know getting caught up in local traffic. So Again, I thought it would be a great idea to know where all the gas stations are along the way. Well, it's evolved
2: a lot further than that. This book is just multifaceted from uh, road stops and gas stations, everything down to, to speed traps and, and museums. There's a lot of Canadian snowbirds, I guess, that, that use this route to get down to Florida, as as well as American snowbirds. If you were to drive from, let's say, well, the Great Lakes or Detroit, straight without stopping down to Florida, how long would it take
3: you? Uh, 23 hours and 47 minutes, Rick. We, ah. we have the database on our <laughs> computer.
2: <laughs> that's like uh, here on the West Coast, that would be Seattle to L.A. So that's sort of the, the making a beeline for the South. But, of course, you can make it much more interesting. So let's talk about that. Take me from Detroit to Dixie on vacation. What are some of the charms along I-75?
3: Well, As we head into Ohio, one of our favorite little places is an old Texaco gas station, sort of 1940s era. It's about half a mile off of I-75, and you wouldn't know it was there if you didn't have the book in your hands. But it literally is a 1940s era gas station with cars from that time parked around it and a fabulous museum, by the way. It's called Snook's Dream Cars. Okay, and is that just taking you
2: back to an older day of road tripping and so on?
3: Oh, yes. You're probably too young to remember, Rick, the vertical uh, glass gas tanks that uh, filled up with gas and then they emptied by gravity. These are the sort of pumps that they have at this station. It's a a wonderful place. In the era
2: before RVs. What was the uh, equivalent of an RV before we had our our modern camper vans?
3: Well, of course, RVs have actually been around for quite a while. Um, They used to be called uh, Tin Can Liz's. There was actually an organization called the Tin Can Tourists, or TCTs, that used to drive from um, northern states down to Florida every year. And they were not um, highly thought of in some of the small communities because they would block up the main street, and they would camp on the outskirts. So when I-75 was built, of course, a lot of these people started bypassing the towns. And this had an opposite effect, because some people have been depending upon the tin can tourists, of course, supporting some of the local businesses. So they were basically converted Fords. Uh, there are a couple still around in museums, and they looked like a, a four-door Ford, but of course they had curtains on the windows.
2: You know, that's an interesting point. When I-75 was built, it probably stole a lot of business from the earlier route that people would have been driving, and, and that would be catastrophic for businesses that suddenly have people zipping by at freeway speeds.
3: Well, this is very true. There was a motel owner down in Kentucky called Harlan Sanders who had a, a lovely little hotel and a dining room, and his specialty was a particular type of dessert that he made. And to his horror, he found um, I-75 was going to be built about a mile and a half to the west of his property. And he just really thought that was going to decimate his business. So he thought about it and he said, well, these travelers are going to need some food that they can pick up and take with them. And he experimented with um, deep fried chicken. And, of course, (laughs) uh, I'm sure you know the rest of the story. Yeah, he was a colonel, wasn't he? Well, he was made a Kentucky colonel, and the beauty is you can still visit his old dining room, and there is a modern KFC franchise right alongside. I'm
2: speaking with Dave Hunter, and Dave updates the Along Interstate 75 guidebook. to 16th edition now, so it's updated just about every year. Dave, when you're driving, with the help of your guidebook, so you make sure you don't miss any of these states, leaving Michigan, you go through Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, then Georgia before Florida. As you're traveling south, What's the personality of these states, just in a nutshell? Take us from uh, the north to the south.
3: I rather like the fact that you're going through seasons because you start off in Michigan and Ohio, typically as a snowbird in the winter. You're also going through reasonably flat country because these are the glacial plains of millions of years ago when uh, the earth was really being carved up by the rocks and the moraines. As you come out of Ohio, though, and into Kentucky... You're now entering the bluegrass, and there is a slight change in the temperature. You're still in a winter's sort of climate, but you have a sense of the horse farms as you go through Lexington. And once you're south of Lexington, you're now coming into the foothills of the, I'm going to say Appalachian Mountains, because that's the correct pronunciation, but we know it as the Appalachian Mountains. Then, of course, in Tennessee, you're going to climb up to one of the highest points on I-75 and come down the other side into Knoxville. And as you leave the mountains through Chattanooga, you're now coming into the northern Georgia country, which is really Civil War country. Again, it's reasonably hilly, and I-75 actually goes through one of the major uh, Civil War battles fought between Sherman and General Johnston. This is the Battle of Resaca as uh, the Confederacy was backing down towards Atlanta. Once you are down through Atlanta, approaching Macon, you're actually coming to an ancient seashore because from this point on, in prehistoric times, this was all underwater. And you're coming down into the sort of limestone regions of lower Georgia and the water aquifers of North Florida, which surprises a lot of people because there are some crystal springs, Uh, beautiful vegetation through that part of the drive.
2: Well, there's a striking amount of variety there, it sounds like, and people who just stay in the freeway the whole way probably can be oblivious to all of that.
3: Oh, they are. Uh, The only thing, of course, they will notice is the change in the um, seasons. Typically in the wintertime, you're beginning to get into the dogwoods as you uh, come out of north Georgia, and the whole uh, sort of flora and fauna will change around you. And that's what I like. You you can really go from winter to almost summer in three days.
2: You mentioned Appalachia. How do
3: you pronounce it correctly? Appalachian is the way they pronounce it in Appalachian. Tennessee. And Appalachian. <laughs>
2: and you cover a museum in your book about Appalachia. Talk a little bit about yeah. Appalachian culture.
3: Well, of course, it's the mountain culture. And we tend to think of uh, stills, illegal stills with moonshine and log cabins and I've got to tell you, some of that actually did exist a number of years ago. We went off the local roads um, using a GPS, and we actually came across a still, and I was able to sample some of the product. Hmm. And let me tell you, there'll never be an energy crisis in uh, in North America <laughs> if you ever put this stuff in your cars. Well. You may not have any valves left. But... Um, the gentleman that built the Museum of Appalachia just north of Knoxville did a wonderful job of bringing some of this culture together. He's relocated old log cabins, um, built a sort of an Appalachian farm with some museums attached, and you step back into the 1800s when you, you visit the Museum of the Appalachians.
2: Now, you live in Toronto and you're Canadian, and you drive down with your wife for vacationing in Florida like a lot of Canadians If you want to kind of connect with the people to enliven this journey, talk a little bit about your favorite ways to connect with the people and how you find the character of people changing as you go south.
3: Well, I just want to immediately jump into Georgia, Rick, because I've got to tell you, the Georgians have an affinity with Canadians, and it's really because we supported them in the Civil War. Um, They got their iron out of Halifax. They used our uh, naval bases in Bermuda, And although when you get off-road in in Georgia, you can still find some of these old-time Georgians who are still fighting, as they say, the war between the states. Wow. They welcome we Canadians. And we found a secret restaurant in um, North Georgia that didn't welcome Yankees. And he doesn't have any signs. It's just really for local people. And yet uh, when we finally walked in... He said, well, you, you're you Canadians. He said, you're welcome here. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that is a great, great change from the typically warm Ohioan, because we do love those little towns up in Ohio. This is where you can still see the old Americana. You right. get off into places like Troy, for instance, with its little restaurants. It's just a beautiful little Victorian town. Lots of flags.
2: I love that. Americana. So this is a a real challenge and I think very rewarding if you can connect with Americana. What are your couple of images of Americana on the trip that are particularly
3: good? Oh, warmth, good cooking, and of course flags everywhere. And of course an, an understanding that you don't just tear down the old, old buildings, but you preserve them. Unfortunately, though, Walmart has, of course, come into some of these communities and moved uh, some of the main streets, and I can think of a couple of places in Ohio that have really become deserted because Mm -hmm. of the big box stores on the periphery.
2: It's sad to find yourself in a world where nothing's more than 10 years old and it's just all chains and so on, and you can get away from that when you get off into small towns. I'm talking with Dave Hunter, and his book is Along Interstate 75. We're talking about meeting people to sort of carbonate your experience one guy you don't want to meet is the state patrolman uh, you 've got a whole section in your book about infamous speed traps and so on. What are your tips for uh, navigating those without any problems?
3: Well, you know I have to be a little careful because this is my career on the line, so I do tend to hang in the right hand lane and set the cruise control at about sixty sixty eight and i've had no difficulty but there is a group of state troopers who are gunning for me down in South Georgia because they apparently have discussed my book. I have their favorite, uh, what I call, wolf pack radar trap. I actually have a map of it in the book and uh, warn all of the people be very, very careful when you <laughs> approach this particular area. What's a wolf pack? It's a case where they have a radar car on an overpass beaming down. This particularly affects the northbound traffic coming out of Florida, by the way. It's on a curve, so you can't see them. They beam down on the northbound traffic, and then they have about seven or eight patrol cars lined up on the entrance ramp from that particular exit, just waiting to get the radio uh, message to go and chase this particular car or that car. But our radar locations in the book are very, very accurate, and one of the reasons is that every year we send out comp copies to a number of deputy sheriffs. And I can't mention their counters, of course. And they secretly give me all of the information that I need for the book, editorially, of course. Whoa.
2: <laughs> now, does this speed trap risk change from state to state or county to county?
3: Well, it, it varies. There, there are patches of it, and there are different techniques, too. We're finding Ohio these days tend to use aircraft, um, hmm. high-wing monoplanes flying out of two or three airfields that we actually identify in the book because they're close to i 75 And so we suggest that if you are going to speed, and Rick, I really don't encourage people to speed, by the way, Mm -hmm. but if you are going to speed, keep an eye out for single-engine aircraft flying parallel to I-75.
2: You know, um, I'm just wondering if you're going to make it a standard practice of not getting a ticket but getting there as quickly as you can safely, what do you set your cruise control beyond the speed limit safely?
3: You don't. It really depends upon the person. What's the speed limit generally on the freeway? It's pretty much 70 mile an hour now. On I-75, Ohio, uh, although it has sort of honored 75 mile an hour with some of its other interstates, is still holding I-75 at 65, but all the other I-75 states are at 70.
2: Well, I know you can't recommend this, so let's just, between you and me, let's say the speed limit (laughs) is 70 but I'm anxious and I don't want to get a ticket, but can I go five over the limit without getting... Yeah, Is that, is that about the max oh, week I, I, if you're very conservative?
3: Between you and I and nobody else listening, Rick, I would say, yeah, set it at 75 and you'll probably be okay.
2: You're generally not going to get pulled over for going five over the limit. No. All right. No,
3: we, we see cars going past this at 80, mm-hmm. and uh, I've actually seen them go past people running radar in the median strip and still get away with it.
2: Your book is its one of the most clever arrangements of travel information with a combination of maps and sidebars and insights and insets and the whole works. Uh, and it's evolved over 16 editions. What is your favorite clever little trick as far as presenting <laughs> information in this book? What's your favorite way to share a practical aid for travelers?
3: You know, the one that we were told would never work in the beginning, and that was we divided up the entire trip into 25-mile color strip maps and we, for the southbound travel, we put south at the top of the page so that it was so intuitive. Everything on the right-hand side of our map is on the right-hand side of your car. You don't have to turn maps upside down. But, of course, each page is about 30 minutes driving time. And that means that, say it's two o'clock in the afternoon, you want to get off the road uh, around five, you've just got to look ahead six pages or three hours and see where you're going to be and what's available at all the exits there.
2: What's the best Civil War site on the whole route?
3: I rather like the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History because it brings everything together. It's in Kennesaw in Georgia.
2: If you're traveling with kids, what's one thing you want to be sure to do on the route?
3: know where all the McDonald's with their playgrounds are, and we actually identify them in the book. We show uh, whether they have an indoor or an outdoor playground.
2: And if you're a music lover, what do you want to be sure not to miss?
3: Well, you've got to arrive in North Tennessee in a little town called Carryville on a Thursday evening because their local restaurant, all of the musicians come down from the hills, and they have a wonderful, wonderful music night.
2: And let's just say you're going to drive from Detroit to Florida, 24 hours straight, and you're going to stop for one meal. What would it be?
3: It would be a Marietta. There to the west of I-75 is an old, old-time diner. It's open 24 hours. It's just the most wonderful food. It's owned actually by some Greeks who really know how to cook. And the beauty is, of course, it's there all the time for you. Just a great place. Now Marietta
2: is in Georgia?
3: It's in Georgia, just north of Atlanta.
2: And the restaurant is called?
3: It's called the Marietta Diner. It
2: sounds like a bit of Americana for anybody needing a break on the trip to Florida. Dave Hunter, author of A Long Interstate 75, thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick.
2: Back in 1977, to commemorate the completion of the last stretch of I-75, known as the Marietta Gap in Georgia, A civic group known as the Committee for Interstate 75 commissioned a song about the highway for the dedication. You've probably never heard it before. It comes from the days when music came on 45s and CB radio was the iPhone of its day. A guy named John Schulenberger sang this little country-western number as Governor George Busby and other officials watched a brand-new Ford 18-wheeler break the ribbon that was stretched across the northbound lanes just above exit 265. It's called... Ballad of 75
5: I travel up north of Mackinac to
3: Sault Ste. Marie. The living's fine in Canada, but there's places yet to see. Just on down the roadways, there's a highway, so they say, that stretches 1,500 miles from here to Tampa
0: Bay. So I'm rolling along.
2: I bet that's the only time the ballad of I 75's been heard on the radio since it was played at the dedication of that last stretch of freeway in Georgia back in 1977. Instead of riding in a truck down the interstate, you're more likely to find Richard Bangs jostling through the jungle in a jeep, riding a camel with nomads, or slicing through white water on a river raft. Richard explains his passion for adventure travel and why he thinks it's just the ticket for fun off the road for anyone anywhere. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The world comes with a lot of adventure. In fact, a lot of people consider themselves adventure travelers. One man is probably considered the father of adventure travel, and he's Richard Bangs, and Richard Bangs joins us today to talk about what is adventure travel. Richard writes a lot of books on the subject, and he hosts and uh, co-produces a public television series called Richard Bangs, Adventures with Purpose. Richard, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Rick. You adventured yeah. all the way to Seattle. It was quite the adventure. It's <laughs> hard to get to Edmonds. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but it's been, worth it. It's worth it, of course. And the nice <laughs> thing about Edmonds is it makes everything else look exciting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And uh, that's why I like calling this place home. It's all relative, isn't it? Now, you got this term, adventure travel, and people credit you with being on the ground floor of that whole concept. In your mind, what is adventure travel? First of all, I don't think I should desert credit. I think adventure travel goes back to a lot of
4: early um, wanderers. I I do think it is something that's elective as opposed to the adventures people had when they had to go to war or had to explore for church or state or whatever it is. But uh, Richard Burton is probably the first great adventure traveler, Sir Richard Burton, who... uh, Took off in the middle eighteen hundreds to explore the world as a passion, huh. and that's the word I think. Adventure travel is about pursuing a passion.
2: Explore the um, world with a passion. I yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah.
4: Is it simply adrenaline? No, no, no. I think adrenaline is. That's a different it, kind of travel, isn't it? Well, you know, it can be a component, um, right? But uh, adventure travel, at least the way I consider it, and when I was young, adrenaline was was a big uh, sweetener of the whole thing. But adventure travel is really more of a state of mind. It's really trying to. Uh, push some boundaries, move off the comfort zone, go down a path you've never been down before, stretch yourself, and sort of rediscover the world, I think, or often discover
2: the world for the first time, and yourself. Now, I think you've been at this for as long as I have. That's a, like a generation. and uh, I think we have. You've seen things change. What's trendy in adventure travel, and what's sort of dying away? Well, uh, when adventure travel as an industry
4: started, it was really for a select group of people, wealthy and often sort of A-types because they were exploring, they were taking risks. Uh, Over time, it has watered itself down and it's become much more accessible and comfortable Hmm. and mainstream. So now some studies, uh, I can't vouch for their accuracy, say that uh, adventure travel makes up about 10% of the entire travel industry and growing, uh, the fastest growing segment. It's active, it's outdoorsy very often, Uh, it exposes yourself to culture, it helps reimagine things.
2: Not that we would endorse the mainstreaming of summiting Mount Everest, but in the old days, you had to be really an elite climber to climb Mount Everest. That's and now a good it's, point. it's I mean, almost an industry, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a huge industry at this point. It's a very lucrative
4: industry, particularly for... I mean, there's for, litter on Mount Everest. That's a concern. Oh, sure. They have special trips to go clean it up, and you could pay a lot of money to go on a cleanup
2: team to take off the uh, the bottles. You, you mentioned a, a great 19th century adventure traveler. What 19th century travel writing has inspired you as an adventure traveler?
4: Well, certainly uh, David Livingston, uh, who was in that same sort of time frame, which was called the Golden Age of Exploration. He wasn't somebody who waxed poetic, but he he had an extraordinary— David Livingston, like David, David Livingston, Livingston Sir, I presume, that yes, guy. Yes, exactly. Okay, you so know, he had ventured and, himself almost right, into right. oblivion. And, and Henry, Henry Morton Stanley, who was the guy who found him, who also—he was a writer first— and kind of a fabulist as well. So they took the grand tour one step further. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the grand grotesque tour in many ways.
2: I'm Rick Steves. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking adventure travel with Richard Bangs. And Richard, you've been all over the world, and not just to the famous capitals, but you've made a point to just really experience the, the wonders of every corner of this of this beautiful planet. I'm just going to um, ask you to flit around the planet right now, and we're going to talk about experiences that might inspire some of our listeners to to get out there and, and have an adventure. Um, riding a camel, you know, it's something we fantasize about. But uh, tell us about riding a camel in your travels. Well, there are lots of places you can ride camel. In, I mean, not uh, that yeah. photo op at Tangier or something like yeah, that. Let's yeah, talk really yeah, going yeah. to a camel market and buying a camel right. or something like this. Well, you like can this. go to Rajasthan and buy one
4: there. <laughs> or You can go to the southern part of Morocco where I think you've been. And there are a lot of experiences even in the Hogar Mountains in Algeria, where you can do a camel safari, uh, a trek for many, many days.
2: Um, I've done that. I did it in Libya. Okay, if you want to take a trip, I mean, like, I've heard of Rajasthan camel safaris and and North Africa. If you wanted to have that real wake-up with the starry, starry night in the middle of the desert and your camel's, like, snoozing just outside of the tent, what would be a good one to go for? Well, the easiest, most accessible one is in southern Morocco. You've probably done it near
4: the Algerian border off of Wazirzat. The sand dunes are the most spectacular and most Hollywood-esque you've ever seen. In fact, probably every scene you've ever seen in a movie with sand dunes
2: and camels, has been shot there. Why is that sad? I have so many beautiful memories of south of those yeah. mountains there where I, I think literally... That's the start you, of the Sahara. You stare at the desert, and what's on the far side? It's it's uh, Timbuktu. Timbuktu. and that's, that, that the next stop the, is Timbuktu. That was
4: part of the whole camel
2: caravans. They, they came from Timbuktu up to the Mediterranean. Now, that's grandiose and epic, but there's also some sort of beautiful, extremely close-up wonder to be on top of a sand dune where the little ridges and start right. a little right. avalanche. Right. You, you can sort of witness the whole
4: world writ small on top of a sand dune. One little sand dune can be like a, a gigantic avalanche that you might imagine on Mount Everest you got or something. You've got
2: this virgin sand dune slope, yeah, and then is. you can glissade down that on your heels. That's right. It's like you're the world's first skier.
4: <laughs> it's really kind of cool. Tell me about a mirage. Well, boy, I've had more than my share of mirages, and some of them were, I think, probably chemically induced by some of the <laughs> fruits you, you get overseas. But, you know, a mirage is, is just a combination of light and, and water very often.
2: Now, you've got a hard-pan sort of surface in the right. desert sometimes. You could yeah. drive on it, can't you? Yes, oh,
4: yeah, yeah. And
2: then you look ahead, and you can't really tell what's what's land and what's water and what's air. Yeah, and that's exactly it. It's, a, it's sort of a mixture of light and sand. I um, drove away from... Souk or Rissani or some town in southern Morocco, and we just picked up a guide in that little town, and, and he was going to take us out to some, some I don't, I don't know yeah. what town we were going to, but yeah. it was scary because I couldn't see anything, and yeah. we were in a little truck, yeah. and we got out and there's some lonely camels around, and you look around, and I could imagine somebody hallucinating and seeing water, because all around, you didn't know, you lost your bearings. It's it's not a cliche, It, it it's something that actually does happen all the time. Talk to me about snake
4: charmers that are not charming tourists well well I mean that that could be interpreted a lot of different ways. <laughs> um, there's certainly a lot of guides as as you well know who will charm a tourist into a certain shop or a certain souk or whatever it is and and then take a big cut.
2: Well, that is. Well, I wasn't thinking about that. I know, but, that but one really, that's, that's one way to interpret it. That's one way to interpret for sure. And, yeah, and sort yeah. of the the natural partner of this adventure travel yeah. is you're going in lands where you're filthy rich, frankly. Ex- and everybody and there is, is out to fleece you. So, it, I've been in a town, and it's clear to me, I got more money in my pocket than everybody yeah. in this town put together. Right. You're a target. And it's always this dance that goes on in a country because they want to attract more tourists
4: because it's so important to the GDP and so important to schools and education and everything else in the country. Uh, yet, on a lower level, the the guides and the wannabe guides and, and, and such like this, they just want an immediate fix. They want to get something out of you in whatever
2: way they can charm you out of it. So And all over the world, I've found that a good investment, if for no other reason than to have a human shield to protect you against all the other wannabe guides, yeah. is to hire an innocuous, likable guy, yes. and then he goes with you, and he keeps all the other guides away. Yes, Absolutely. That's far and away the best way to go. <laughs> when you when you're traveling in Africa, you get a chance to see these great migrations. Yes, yes. Well, through the Serengeti, of course,
4: which is the most famous, and they're building a highway through the Serengeti now, which has caused a lot of brouhaha in certain circles because it may divide up the whole great migration. With the wildebeest as the biggest one there, uh, but there are migrations all through central and southern Africa that are extraordinary,
2: unlike anything you ever find. Anyplace but a, in a the good world. tour company would know where you could just position yourself and watch literally hundreds of thousands of, of absolutely. wild animals uh, running across the plains.
4: Absolutely. I mean, the, the Serengeti is, is eminently accessible and watchable, and there are two big migrations a year. And they're, they're very well-timed, and you can drive to a vantage point and be
2: part of it. I know when the fish are running here, yeah, yeah. and they would know same when sort the... of thing. Same sort of thing. <laughs> same They've seen sort it for, of thing. <laughs> for a time immemorial. Yeah. Now, when you're out in the wild like that, you must see the survival of the fittest in action.
4: Yes. And, you know, that's one of those things that people think about before they do a family safari, for instance, because you're going to see nature at its rawest. If you're lucky, and many people are, you'll see a lion kill. But the, you know, the concept of the circle of life is there in full frontal evidence. And for some families and some children, it's a little bit too raw, but it happens. It's the reality. And for many, it's a a very, very important lesson. And it shows you how simple things are and how, you know, ultimately there's a lot, a and lot of the, artifice. It's in the way. honest truth, you it know. It is. This, this is raw truth. And, you know, there's much to be said for that. You see raw truth when you leave home. Absolutely. I think travel is the best way to, to sort of reveal
2: what's really going on in yourself and in the world. Now, I know you're really into mountain climbing. Tell me your favorite king of the mountain feeling. <laughs> well, I I think that's a bit of a cliche. <laughs> uh,
4: you know, there is this whole concept of, of well, the Rocky standing the Rocky move. On a, standing on a peak with a 360-degree
2: yeah. view. I, you know, even if it's just 3,000 feet high, right. it feels well, good but, to be
4: on that peak. It does, but it feels good to be right out here in Edmonds, right in the water. You could have right. that same exalting feeling. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, most mountains— are difficult to climb. And it's the opposite of, let's say, a river rafting experience where as you go downstream with the hot sun on your back, you're taking your clothes off, and it's a very sensual thing. As you go up a mountain, you become more and more insulated from the world and from your companions. You withdraw into yourself. It can be incredibly taxing. And when you finally get to the top, there is there is an emotional release that takes place, much of it just because of physical what release. is that
2: release? Is it you? You feel triumphant,
4: or do you feel like I want to get down? I think most people feel like they want to get down. I don't know that there's a lot of transcendence after you've climbed a big it's mountain. Just, you get up <laughs> there
2: and you realize, right. now, the sun's going down. Right, I'm right, tired. Right. I don't have much water. I right. want to get down. Right.
4: Yeah, you know, and Ed Vistas
2: famously says, you know, it's not so much about getting to the top of the mountain, it's really getting down that that counts. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're just kind of fantasizing about adventure travel around the world with Richard Bangs. Richard is a very prolific writer and TV producer. His website is richardbangs.com. Richard, in your travels, have you been in some place, and I'm not talking Europe where we think of feudalism and so on, but just a sense that you're really in the Middle Ages, that you're out of our time. Oh boy, many, many times. Um, Yemen
4: actually is a great example. I remember dropping uh, into Yemen in Tasana a few years ago and,
2: and driving north up towards the Saudi Arabian border. You know, I hear a lot about that, about Yemen. I mean, I'm sure there's tourism there, but a lot of people don't even consider it. But it's perfectly accessible, isn't it? It's very accessible, but there's virtually no tourism at this point. It's on the watch list. Oh, there's the al-Qaeda involvement there going on.
4: This is an extraordinary place, and it is like going back to 1,001 nights. Extraordinary, yeah. And and they all all wear these curved daggers, and they're all chewing this drug called cot, which is a a mild narcotic that they... they, um, it's ubiquitous, and
2: they, they take it, and they sort of check out for half the day. <laughs> really? Because, you know, you go to uh, someplace in, in the First World, and everybody's uh, smoking tobacco. Right, right. All right. Uh, in, you uh, go to the Saudi South Arabia. Pacific, it's betel nut. Betel nut. Uh, I yeah, mean, you yeah. walk down the streets in um, Jakarta, and it's just speckled with this red betel nut. Right, right. right.
4: People's teeth are all stained
2: red. And, now, and, I, I and ate it. that stuff yeah, in so. uh, Papua New Guinea, and it makes you salivate, doesn't it? just like it turns on a faucet. It does. It's not a particularly pleasant taste for, I think, Westerners, but,
4: <laughs> so but the- they're addicted to it. Uh, and drink is a whole different area. Um, but throughout East Africa, uh, particularly the Maasai, they will often drink cow's blood and that's their their primary meal. So they, they – And that's eat, simply nourishment. It's nourishment and, and it's a lot of nourishment. I mean they're very – if you've seen the Maasai, they're – They're they're specimens. I've heard they just plop a a straw right into their neck and and then they pull it out and it it, it heals up and they're on their way. Right. They use mud to heal up the little wound on the neck but they stick a sharp straw into the neck. Now have you done that? They drain the blood. I've drunk the blood. I didn't put the straw in. You've drunk the
2: blood. Fresh. I have. Yeah, Yeah. And that was not because you get, I had a hard time with that. Yeah. A minute ago, you were talking about finding yourself in another age. And we think of um, Yemen as a good example. Yeah, yeah. To me, Nepal is a place where you can do that. I, I'll never forget outside of um, Kathmandu, Bhaktapur, I think yeah, is the yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. And people were just going about their livelihood as if it was just any century. It could have been a thousand years ago. It has, hasn't changed. A uh,
4: lot of places have changed. For instance, look, Lhasa which which was like that not long ago, since the Chinese have taken over, they put up a super highway right in front of the Portella Palace. So it's this gigantic 20-lane highway in what used to be uh, one of those beautiful testaments to an ageless construction mm-hmm. in, a, in a religious center. And it's it's gone. And that's the
2: downside of tourism and also the downside of political interference. Well, that is an interesting issue because when I was in Papua New Guinea, the big discussion was we're bringing a lot of money in by bringing tourists here and the people like the money. Yeah. But is it is it ruining it? Should it just be left? And should we deny those people the boost to their economy by coming to visit them? It is a, an interesting thing to consider.
4: Well, I mean, it touches upon sort of an elitist concept that has always been part of um, of environmentalism, and that's you know preserve the place for for a few of us who can who have the money and wherewithal to see it. And I have a hard time with that particular notion. I ultimately think people should have access to any place in the world, that it's good for all humanity to travel, and we shouldn't be part of the uh, mobile rich exacting ourselves on the inert poor, uh, that, that it should be as interactive as possible.
2: I think um, one of the ethical issues might be, if you're concerned about a society you're visiting, consume in a way where your money stays there. Absolutely. I mean, and, that's one of the tenets of ecotourism. Yeah, um, because you can easily travel to some idyllic tropical paradise with lots of desperate people, spend a lot of money, yeah. and none of it would stay there. Yes, absolutely. And, and without They're even sta- knowing it, you'd y- be sucking water away from everybody else who needs it so you can go golfing.
4: Yeah, and, you know, that's obscene in so many ways. I mean, very very often the paradigm you're talking about where somebody will, will stay at a chain hotel that's a foreign-owned hotel, and they've taken the villages and they've turned them into servants who work for the place, or that have been pulled out of the local village, and they've really disrupted uh, an integrous environment. And then the only interface with the culture is often these sort of fake dances, where they bring them out and perform at a safe distance from the from the clients, who then go back to their rooms and order room service and get a cheeseburger and a. And a Coke, and then go golfing the next day. And the unfortunate and, thing is, they fly all the way home, and they learned nothing more about exactly, the world than exactly. when they left. <laughs> and that's that's you know that's the sad part of, of it all because it, it's so enriching and it can make such a difference. Uh, it really can be a political act to to travel, and and I think us who are travel purveyors uh, have the opportunity and maybe the obligation
2: to to get people to be aware when they travel. Talk to me about your take on going to. Places where some people think you should be boycotting them because of their politics. So I don't believe in that at all. That's a that's a, a lively discussion that
4: takes place very often when uh, when there's political oppression. Uh, South Africa with apartheid is one of the one of the great examples where um, much of the world felt we should not go because the monies ultimately would be uh-huh. going towards the government, which which precipitates. And then why do you say it's better to go there? And Paul Simon was one of the leaders in this whole mm-hmm. thing. He so he forgot the boycott. He said, "I'm going in there." Uh, teamed up with local musicians, made music that affected the world, and brought people to uh, to awareness. Tell me quickly about places to visit before they're gone. Wow, there are a lot of those. Um, sadly, uh, Ethiopia and, and the Blue Nile Valley and the Blue Nile Falls, one of the most magnificent, it's one of the wonders of the world. And, and that's going to be gone because of some water politics. W- water politics, uh, the rivers being diverted upstream, and uh, tourism actually could make a difference, and you'd see something magnificent along the
2: way. It seems to me, Richard, that through your passions, you gain sort of both passion and empathy. Tell us about one place that has impassioned you and also given you some powerful empathy. Not too far from, from where we are now.
4: In southeastern Alaska, there's a, there's a river called the, the Tachinchini. I did the first descent of that many years ago. Uh, and then a copper mine was coming in a few years ago in the British Columbia sector, in North America, it's the corridor with probably the most wildlife extant. So more grizzly bears, more bald eagles, lots of moose and and fox. If they had built this copper mine, uh, it would extract uh, sulfuric acid that would go into the water table that would then affect the fish, that would affect the, the bear and the eagles. They would have died. Uh, it would have disappeared. But it was through tourism, through bringing people – uh, down this corridor and and them feeling the magnificence of it all that got them to become activists. And that activism changed the policy and ultimately shut down this mine and turned the Tachinshani into a national park.
2: Tourism can be a, a force for good. Yes, absolutely.
4: And I've seen this happen over and over again where the right type of tourism can make
2: a very positive difference. Richard Bangs, I think the name of your TV series, Richard Bangs' Adventures with Purpose, is quite apt. Thanks a lot, and happy travel. Thank you, Rick.
5: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut, and at the CBC in Toronto, and to Dave Hunter for providing a rare copy of John Schulenberger's Ballad of I-75. We also get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged most of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Plus, Rick offers guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. It's all part of the Rick Steves Audio Europe Package. You'll find links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com and join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves.
3: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.